1 Peter chapter 3. I love Peter, one of my favorite characters in God's word. I love this book that he wrote, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. Um, Peter has just let us know here in his word that Jesus himself, as believers in Christ, we are now the royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're his special people, and since we are citizens of God, our permanent place, our residency is in heaven. We're citizens of heaven. And because we are citizens in heaven, we should live life differently down here knowing that we're citizens in heaven. And we need to realize we're foreigners, we're passing through. This is not our permanent estate. We have a place in heaven that's amazing. And since we're citizens of a higher calling, our standards down here should be higher. And the people around us should see that. And so Peter goes on in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to be able to show us how we need to live this citizenship before others and how we're supposed to live that citizenship with our government, how our relationship is to be with our masters or, or people in the workforce, and how we should live our marriages so that others will see Christ in us. And so Peter goes on to tell us these things that we live out in front of other people. Here are the different relationships that we need to live it out so they see Jesus in us. And so here in verse 8 of 1 Peter 3.8, he kind of sums it up after all of that, showing us how we're supposed to live. He says this, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter summarizes the whole thing by saying, all of you, we should all have the same mindset, meaning as believers, the same mindset, understanding everything that was said before. This is how we're supposed to live our lives in front of others. It's always about others. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, your walk here on earth is all about others trying to reach the lost. And the way they're going to see this is by us inside the body of Christ having compassion for one another. He's speaking about the body of Christ. And so we need to understand that this love, this compassion, that this uh, love and being tenderhearted, being courteous, being compassionate has to be seen within the body. Those outside are looking inside the body. Jesus himself said, this is the new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, you also love one another. Why? He goes on and says, by this, you loving one another, by this, all will know that you are my disciples your love for one another. See, it makes no sense to love people outside the body if we can't love each other inside the body. This is where people are going to see that Jesus is moving, is inside the body. They look inside the body. They see that Jesus is moving here by how we love one another. The word compassion here, and this is interesting to me, because before Jesus gave us the Great Commission, to go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
He gave us first the great care commission that we love one another. Inside the body, that has to be taking place first. The word compassion here means have a fellow feeling or suffering, feeling what the other person is going through. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there should be no schisms, no divisions within the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Compassion is what moves you to action. You feel what the other person feels. You hear of a hard time that they're going through, and the Lord moves you to say, you need to pray for them. The Lord moves you to say, call them. Find out what they need, how you can come alongside to let them know you're not only praying for them, but you care about what it is that they are going through. This is what we need to do as the body of Christ. Those outside need to be able to see that. They're going to hear of that. All of a sudden, they're going to they're get a call from someone outside. The body. Hey, I heard you lost your job. What's going on? Well, my church is coming alongside. They've helped out. People have brought us groceries. They've helped out with rent, whatever it might be. And, and I've gotten a couple of other leads, and people are setting up things at the church to help me meet with this person, that person, so I can get a job. Really? You know? Hey, I heard that so-and-so in your family has cancer. What can I do? Well, this is what our church is doing. Boom, 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 boom. It starts mentioning all the different things. That's a witness to those outside the body. They have to see that it's happening here first. Instead, a lot of times what they hear is, yeah, I was going through this trouble, that trouble. Well, what did your church do? They didn't do anything. I'm not even going there anymore. Wow. And that's what they're hearing out there. That, that, that shouldn't be the case. We have to love here inside the body of Christ. Sometimes to understand a word, it's good to know the antonym to compassion. It would be indifferent, hard-hearted, unkind. We don't want to be that way with people within the body. We want to have compassion on one another. It says love is brothers. The word love here is, is a brotherly, sisterly, fraternal, or communal love, meaning we're loving because we all have something in common. And what we have in common is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're the family of God. We're his children. And because we're his children, we need to love one another. Family puts down whatever's going on to be able to meet the needs of family. That's what family does. And so that's what we need to do as a body of Christ. The antonym to that is hostility or anger, being argumentative, unfriendly, unwelcoming. That's why that even though we're, we're believers and there might be some non-essentials that we don't necessarily a, a, agree on, we can joke with one another. We can still love each other even though we don't have the same understanding that possibly that person does about something in the Word of God. We can still love one another. I know that at, um, in Castle Rock, I meet with like 15 to 25 other pastors every single week on Thursday morning. We pray for the town and each other. We pray that the town would come to know Christ. We pray for each other. We pray for people in each other's fellowships that are going through a hard time. We unify around the person of Jesus Christ. Everybody who comes, it's about Jesus and it's about loving each other as we try and pursue and reach people in the town for Jesus. And whether they come to our fellowship or someone else's fellowship, so long as they come to Jesus, that's all we care about, to have unity there. And there are some pastors, I would say the majority of them, don't believe in the rapture. Okay. We can still pray that someone comes to salvation even though they don't believe in the rapture. I do. I joke with them all the time. Hey, I'll explain it to you on the way up. You know? 
And then he joked with me with different things that we believe in. It works fine. Nobody's angry with each other. We're able to really see how this really works within the framework of the town. And it's really wonderful to be able to see. And it first needs to take place in our own churches before the churches can come together in this manner. And so we do. We, we, we try very hard to make sure are we having compassion. Are we loving one another? The other one is tenderhearted. That just means mercy. Are you being merciful to one another? You know, the antonym to that is being insensitive, unfeeling, or callous. The next one is courteous. It means exactly that. You're being very kind. You're being very friendly. You're taking the low place, humility. And the antonym to that is rude. You know, anytime I begin to feel insensitive, unfeeling, or callous towards the needs that are happening in the body, I need to take a step back. I need to ask God to forgive me. I need to probably take some time off and let God minister to my heart. Because as a pastor, it happens. There's a lot of needs that come, and I have to check my heart. And my wife is a great barometer of that. Yeah, you need to take two steps back. I can just kind of see your attitude in this. How do you feel about this couple? How do you feel about this person? How do you feel about this need that's in their life? Yeah, I'm kind of indifferent right now. I'm kind of callous. There's so many things going on. And we could blame as many things as we want. But if I start feeling that way, I have to step back and I have to say, okay, Lord, there's some repair work you need to do in my heart. There's some surgery that needs to take place because I'm not feeling the way I'm supposed to towards the people that are here in the body. And I know that's my issue. And so you need to change that. And so some of these antonyms as we're looking at, are you being rude to people? Are you being in, then we need to go to God and ask him to change that. And then he goes on in verse nine and he says, and understand this when it comes to people in general, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And you're thinking, well, does that happen in the body of Christ? (laughs) Are you human? Are you people? It does sometimes happen. You know, I've, I've mentioned before from the pulpit, I said, hey, if you're new here and, and you met a rude person or somebody that maybe was insensitive to you as you walked in or whatever, I just want to let you know that person is also new. And I want them to come and I want them to change in the person of Jesus Christ. I want rude people to come here. I want people that are insensitive. I want people that are hurting. I want people that aren't Christ-like to come to this church So they will learn to become Christ-like. It's a hospital. You're going to run into people who are sick, very young in their journey in the Lord and things like that. And so if that happened, we're sorry about that, but it gives you an opportunity to pray for them, you know, and you can be a part of this body. But we don't return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. It says Jesus, we're told that when he was reviled, did not revile in return. And we can't do it either. I have this slide here. Here's three ways you can respond to somebody. After you've been reviled, some evil has been done. You can do the evil way. This is one that actually comes with a curse. This is where you're being evil after somebody did you good. And in Proverbs 17, 13, whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. You can do it the second way. This is the human way. This is the way everybody, for the most part, does. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. If you're bad to me, I'm going to be bad to you. You know, we read about that. Uh, Jesus himself talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do that. Everybody does that. The third way is the divine way. This is the one that we're called to do. This is the high road. This is returning good, even though evil has been done to you. Even though someone has reviled you. 
This is exactly what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. They may be sons of your Father in heaven. Have you ever wondered why? Hey, I got this person, he's persecuting me. I have this guy, he's my nemesis. This guy did this, I don't understand it. Why? Do you think Jesus just said this in theory? He said this because this is going to happen to you. You're going to be persecuted. Someone doesn't like you and you can't believe it. You're the most wonderful person in the world. And yet this person continues to do whatever it is they might do. Saying bad things about you or not treating you well or being rude to you or whatever. What is the deal with that? The deal is that God wants you to implement this right here. He wants you to do what? Love them. You know what? By the way, love is an action. What can you do for them? And then he wants you to bless them. You're going to bless them by that action that you do. And you know what else you're going to do? You are going to pray for them. You're going to pray for them. And this is what is going to happen. As you begin to love on that person, as you begin to pray for that person, as you go up and talk and be kind to that person, you know who changes? You do. You do. And now it becomes water off a duck's back. If they say something, it really doesn't, isn't going to bother you. But as you're doing that, you're also putting in place something that we're told that Paul tells us about. He says, look, if your enemy is hungry, you do what? You feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. For in so doing, you're putting heaping burning coals upon their head. And you're going, oh, I like that part. Oh, how do I do that part? Well, by being loving and kind, and what that means is, is that they're ashamed of the way they're treating you. It's burning upon them because you are being so nice, so loving, and then you're actually praying for them. That it's hard to kick against the goads. It's very hard to continue to do that with that burning. Instead, it is, it is actually human nature even. That as you continue to do nice things to them, eventually they go, oh, I probably should do something nice back. And the next thing you know, both people are changing. But I'm here to tell you it's going to change you more. It's going to change you more. Um, I forget, I, I think I was talking to Chuck um, out here, and I just said, that God ch- challenges me on this all the time. There, there'll be people that come to the church that, um, in, in a sense, you know, drive me crazy. You know, uh, their attitude, they're an Eeyore, they're kind of always have this to say, or they don't have nice things to say to me, to my face, or whatever, and yet they continue to come to the church. And so God showed me a long time ago, every time you see them, you're going to go up to them, you're going to say hi to them, you're going to love them, you're going to say, how can I pray for you? I'm so glad that you're here. And I'm thinking, but Lord, I'm lying, you know? No, no, you're going to say you're glad that they're here because I'm glad that they're here. Okay, you're right, and this and that. As I do that, within months, they no longer bug me. They're no longer irritating to me. I find that they no longer say the bad things that they used to say about me or the church or whatever. And all of a sudden, I begin to, I know this is going to sound weird, like them. That peculiarity that, that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way doesn't anymore. And then I, I, I'm able to see it for what it is. I kind of see behind it. I see it as an insecurity. And now I begin to feel for them. And I, now I really am praying for it. God changes me as I do that. And that's part of being what? Christ-like. Part of being Christ-like. 
And so we need to do that. And so he goes on and he says here in 1 Peter 3, 9, but on the contrary, blessing. We don't return evil for evil. We do not revile. Instead, on the contrary, we bless. Knowing that you were called to this. Do you realize that, do you know what your calling is? Yeah, it's to teach, to help on Sunday. It's to be a greeter. To be, no, your calling in Christ is also to bless others. Did you know that? So the question I have, are you a blessing to others? Ask yourself that question. Are you a blessing to others? Because if you're not, you're not fulfilling your calling. When people think of you, are they going, yes, love that person? As you walk in a room, do you think people are thinking, oh, I'm so glad that they're here? When you call someone, are they thinking, oh, I'm so glad that he's calling, she's calling? Are you a blessing to people? Because that is what you're called to do. I have many people, many people in our fellowship in Castle Rock that if we have an event and they walk through the doors, my heart soars. It's like, oh, it's so great they're here. They're so fun. They're so uplifting. They're so encouraging. They'll be quick to pray for people. They'll lend a hand of what needs help here. Oh, it's so great that they're here. So many people like that. And there's other people that you kind of go, okay, well, I guess there's my ministry for the next couple hours. Right? They're the Eeyores of the fellowship. And I want them because we want to bless. We want to exhort. We want to encourage, you know. These are the people that always come that it doesn't matter how much we minister. It's still all about them. It's all about them. And we should all have these people in our lives. If you don't have a difficult person in your life, I would submit to you, it's probably because you are the difficult person in someone's life. Okay? But it's like, what do you want? Do you want people to go, oh, I'm so glad he's here. I'm so glad she's here. Or do you want people to think, okay, I guess he's my ministry, she's my ministry. Nothing ever seems to work. They're always praying, I'm coming because it's all about me. I want to just go, blah. Okay, how long have you been doing that? For about four years now? Really, you're still blah. It's always about you. It's got to be something that changes. Because here's where change really begins, is when you don't come to the church hoping that they could do something for you. Maturity comes when you come to church because you're now hoping to be used to be able to minister to someone else. I'm coming for the conscience sake of others now. I'm no longer coming to be able to just get someone to pour into me all the time. You know, that's maturity. But I want those who are immature to come because that's what we've been called to do, pour in. Because once we see that change, how magnificent that's going to be. It's going to be absolutely wonderful. But you were called to bless other people. The word blessing there is a Greek word that means to speak well of, to thank, to invoke, a benediction, or to prosper. And, and it's a great thing to ask, are you those kind of people? If not, Lord, change me. Because I want to be a blessing to others. I want to be a blessing to others. So he goes on and he says in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Peter quotes from Psalm 34 here to confirm that God's blessing rests on those who refrain from evil speech and practice his righteousness. Then he reads from verse 11 here, he quotes from Psalm 27, 27 that says, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Not only are you going to be blessed by God by not speaking evil, but you're also going to be blessed by God when you don't do evil deeds. 
and you seek after peace and you're pursuing it with other people. And then he goes on in verse 12, and even though it looks like in your Bible that he's quoting a verse, there's no verse in the Old Testament that says that. Instead, this verse in verse 12 is a combination of verses that you see time and time in God's word. That, that for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The closest ones I could find is like in Proverbs 15, 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Micah 3, 4. Then they will cry to the Lord. He will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time because they have been evil in their deeds. If you are speaking evil of someone, if you are doing evil towards someone, if you're not being loving towards someone, do you really think God's going to bless you? He loves you. Your salvation isn't an issue here. It's God moving on your behalf. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, the blind man that Jesus healed in John 9 knew as he was being brought before the religious leader, the religious leaders were not um, accepting the fact that Jesus was sent from God and that this miracle that he did will give glory to God. We don't believe that Jesus did the miracle. And so this man who is blind and now sees says this in John 9, 31. Now we know that God does not hear sinners. Now how does he know to say that? Because even though he's blind, he's been going to the synagogue, he's still hearing the word of God, and he's heard his whole life that God doesn't hear the prayers of the unrighteous. And so he says that to the religious leaders. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of the one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Thus, obviously, God heard Jesus and was able to use him to heal this blind man. Because God does not hear the prayers of the unrighteous. The point all through scripture here is that what we're seeing here is that we need to understand that if you want God to bless and use you, then we need to be doing the things that he says to do. And so Peter goes on and says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? I love this because the word harm there doesn't mean uh, that nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. He's speaking of something more permanent. What's the permanent harm in doing good? If someone kills you for doing good, where's the permanent harm in that? Where do you go? I go to heaven. Really is not a bad deal for me. If I continue to preach the word and pour into people and someone gets mad at me or whatever, pulls out a gun and shoots me in the head, you know what? As, as tragic as that is for my kids and my grandkids and other people that I've left behind, for me, I'm good. What permanent harm is that? You just sent me into eternity to be with my Lord and Savior. There's no permanent harm. Jesus spoke of that. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I have a different perspective than those who don't know Jesus. For those who don't know Jesus, yeah, I would be very, very, um, uh, have a lot of anxiety, very worrisome over how I'm going to die. Very worrisome of what happens after I die. Very worrisome about that. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't have that. They can't do any everlasting harm to you. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Re rejoice 
Be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then comes, because Peter has said, this is how you live your life. This is how we need to make sure we're loving each other inside the body of Christ. As people see on the outside, he now says in verse 15, but sanctify, set apart the Lord of God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks of you of the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. As you're loving each other in the body of Christ, doing everything that God has shown you to do in the body of Christ, people outside the body of Christ are gonna say, why do you believe? Why do you believe in Jesus? What's the reason for the hope that is in you which tells me something? They see a hope in you. That's why they're asking. And you have to be ready to give a defense of the hope that's in you. You should practice it. You should already know what it is that you're going to say. And it shouldn't be just something, well, because uh, I just believe in Jesus. Well, that doesn't really resonate. That's really not going to change a heart or anything like that. You know, you should think about it. Dave, why do you believe what you believe? Well, one of the reasons that I believe in what I believe is because the evidence to me is overwhelming. It's just overwhelming to me that I can see, without having the word of God, I can see God's invisible attributes every day in his creation. And if there's a creation, there is a creator. That, that, that just seems to make sense to me. To believe that something came from nothing just flies in the face of reason to me. So if there's creation, there has to be a creator. When I see a watch, when I see a computer, I know there's someone of intelligence created that, that that computer just didn't manifest on its own. Something came from nothing. Reason tells you that. And so I see creation. I see order. You know what? It's, it's, it's always winter, spring, summer, fall. I've never seen it go from summer to spring. I've never seen it go from winter to fall. It always follows that order. You know what I also see? I see the sun every single day rise. I see it set every day. There's order. There's creation. There's someone of intelligence behind it all. I don't need a whole lot of reasoning for that. I can see that. I can see that. When it comes to, when I look at all the claims of religion, it seems to me that Christianity has most evidence of truth. I look at the historical accuracy of God's word. It lines up. I look at the archaeological evidence it lines up exactly with what the Bible says. I look at these things and I go, it's interesting to me, that's the only book written that is as accurate historically, archaeologically, things like that. When it comes to what others' religions say, I look at the truth claims of Christianity. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner. Guess what? I don't really need someone to convince me that I'm a sinner. It's interesting to me that there's no other religion out there that talks about sin. None. And the Bible's the only one that says where it came from. I now know why I'm in this state. No other religion talks about that. 
None. So I look at these truth claims. And I look at what other religions say and how you're to be saved or get to the next plane or the next great understanding or, or how you're able, and you have to earn it. Or you're reincarnated. Or you don't get to go to that world. You have to stay down in this one. And only 144,000 can go to that heaven. And You have to earn it. Isn't it interesting that Christianity is the only one that says you can't earn it. You can't. You're already fallen. You're sinful. I, God, have to do it for you through my son. And he is going to pay the penalty for sin because we're all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And God's word makes it very clear. Guess what? The wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus has come, live the perfect life, die for our sin, pay that penalty for us. And if we receive the work that he did, we are saved. I love that. And after you're saved, guess what? You now understand where you came from. You all of a sudden have purpose and meaning for now, and your future is so bright. Christianity answers all the questions. Where did I come from? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going after I die? Christianity has all those questions answered. None of the other religions do. Well, we go on to, you know, uh, more energy and this and that. Nobody really knows what happens after death. I do because I have a Savior who died and rose again and told me. Why should I listen to someone who's never died and rose again? I'm going to listen to the one person in all of history that died and rose again. I would submit to you, he probably knows more about death than anyone. So I went to this website. It's Quora.com. Because I just don't understand why anybody would want to be an atheist. I don't understand why anybody wouldn't want to be a Christian. With all that it has to offer and everything else. And so this slide here... Where do we come from? What is the purpose of life? What happens after we die? I went to Quora.com. According to atheists, where did humans come from? And so I just wanted to hear what they had to say. The interesting thing is, as this question is posed to them, how often they want to point, well, it's not God. Okay, well, that wasn't the question. Every question here has nothing to do with God. The question itself, I just want to know what you believe. Where are you coming from? Where do you, uh, what do you believe about where you came from? What do you believe about the purpose and meaning of life? What do you believe you go after you die? You're an atheist. Anti-theist. By your very name, I already understand. You don't believe God. But none of those questions is asking you about God. It's asking you of somebody without God what you believe and it's amazing to me how often they would start off answering a question, saying, well, it can't be God. Okay, that's not the question. So this person says this. He says, I think that most atheists believe the human life evolved from earlier form or primates. So he goes on to express evolution. This other person says, theists think God exists. Atheists do not think God exists. That is all. Okay, we already know that by your name. So why do you have to bring up that you don't believe God? This person says, as an atheist, the only possible answer is not from God. Okay, again, not the question. 
And so he goes on and he says, now as a person who has read more than one book and with a certain knowledge of biology and paleontology, it's interesting as he wrote that he misspelled paleontology, but anyway, such a man of great knowledge, I can say that humans come from other humans called parents and that if you go back some million years, they come from previous human Proto-human species, if you keep going back, you can add rodent-like mammals, mammal-like reptiles, so on until you come to a single-cell organism. To sum up, it seems most atheists believe in evolution, that humans evolved from primates, primates from other species. All species find themselves back to a single cell, which finds itself back to the Big Bang, where something came from nothing. Possibly the dumbest statement that has ever been said on the face of the earth over and over and over again. What was the Big Bang? Okay, what was the Big Bang exactly? Well, there was nothing, and then, bang, something. Wow, the intelligence behind that (laughs) is just amazing to me. And you hold on to that, and that's where it comes from. Then we ask the question, what is the purpose of life? This person said that, I had to clean this one up. That had all sorts of profanities. I had to clean this one up says, and again, what is the purpose of life? First word, Christians. Okay, that's not the question. But you can see where an atheist comes from. There is something in the atheist's brain and understanding things. He is so angry with God that he has to bring Christians into it, God into all of his answers without saying, I'm not asking you about God. I'm just asking what you believe. And you seem to have to attack Christianity first to show that's why you don't believe before you go on to say why you do believe. He says, Christians spend their lives going to church, seeking converts, sinning, asking for forgiveness, feeling guilty, praying, asking for more forgiveness, wondering if grace is sufficient, wondering if their friends will go to hell who aren't saved, giving 10% of their income to church, feeling more guilty, trying not to be tempted by sin, feel guilty for sin. I would submit to you, this person probably grew up knowing God. Confessing their sins, wondering if they should witness to the lost soul sitting next to them on the airplane. Then he makes this statement. Atheists go to movies, life just is, that's the purpose. Wow. This person says the purpose of life is simply to live it. Provided that one's lifestyle doesn't cause damage to others. None of these approaches towards seeking purpose is innately better or worse than any other. I am an atheist. I spend time on various hobbies and interests. I try not to hurt others, try to help and support my family and friends. Whenever I can, I get involved in several activities which I find enjoyable. I take an interest in politics and the world around me. But none of these things is the purpose of living because life is not designed with purpose. It's simply a happy accident to be savored. The interesting thing is is that um, you just stated the purpose. When you say there is no purpose, then you say it's simply a happy accident to be savored. That's the purpose that you give it. This person said, for me, life exists because of a series of random incidents during the course of history, which resulted in the mixing of certain elements, eventual chemicals, which resulted in life. The purpose of life in the rawest of sense is to propagate the species and ensure its continual survival. This person just said, There is no meaning to it. Just like there's no meaning to the presence of empty space. No meaning to any scientific question. No meaning to why there's energy. No meaning why red is red in color. Everything just exists and that's it. 
Meaning itself is a product of the human mind. We create the meaning we want behind any phenomena. Just like everything inherently exists without any labels, names, good or evil. We are the ones who give an object name, label it, and even classify it as good or evil. In reality, it simply exists. Next question, what happens after death? This person says, nothingness. Everything was me is now gone, ended forever. I won't be aware of it just as I wasn't aware of anything before I was conceived. This person says, it's a simple question and a simple answer. The same thing that happens to all life forms, except for those in a casket, it takes longer. We eventually decompose. If we're buried without a casket, the creatures in the earth will eat our remains to sustain their lives. Eventually, we'll be a pile of unconnected bones that might one day be discovered by a future anthropologist. That's it. We live, we die, the world goes on. This person says, sorry to say, but that's all there is, and once your body's gone, you are gone. This person said, nothing is just nothing. I like this next person's answer. They said, well, if you're rude, cruel, and a horrible atheist, when you die, your body becomes one with the earth, your body becomes fertilizer for the earth, you sprout into a beautiful tree. Then to atone for your sins, you're chopped down, pounded into paper, and the Bible is printed on you. <laughs> At least she has a sense of humor. Then she goes on, she mentions that she got that joke from a comedian. But then she goes, one minute I will be alive, the next I won't. It's as simple as that. I have this slide here. For the atheist, who am I? Just a cosmic chance of events who's human. Where do I come from? Human parents, long ancestry, leads back to primates, leading back to eventually a single cell, which came from a big bang of nothingness. What is your purpose of life? No purpose, just is, just live it. Where do I go when I die? Nowhere. Just cease to exist. The hope. See, you have a hope. Get ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you because you have a hope. People see that you have a hope. and People see that atheism is feudalism. There's no hope whatsoever. This next slide for the Christian. Who am I? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a new creation. There is no longer any condemnation because I am a child of God. I love that. I'm a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. It says, says, therefore, anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. That's one of the things that I love so much about my faith is knowing that because I gave my life to Jesus, guess what? I'm different. I'm new. It doesn't, it, 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 he, he tells us, he says, look, old things pass away. All that junk that, that is following you, that you feel bad about, and everything, it's taken away now. I want to make you new. You're going to become a new creation. So you can't even imagine what I can do with you if you just submit yourself to me. If you're willing, available, and teachable, what I can do through you is going to be absolutely amazing. And it'll be for eternity. It'll be for the kingdom of God. It will have eternal value. How exciting about that. One of my favorite areas of scripture is Hebrews chapter 11. Because Hebrews chapter 11 is the hall of faith. So they list all these men and women of God's word that are great men and women of God that have done great and mighty things for God. And, and, and it's spoken about. It's called, a lot of people call it the hall of faith. You know, oh, I want to meet this person. I want to meet that person. Oh, they did so many different things. Oh, Abraham, what a godly man. A man of faith, it says. And, and how incredible he was in chapter 11. And then I'm thinking, wait a minute. I read Genesis. Abraham made a lot of mistakes. Abraham one time told Sarah, hey, I want you to tell Pharaoh that you're my sister. 
So when we go down there, as he sees that you're a babe, okay, and wants to marry you, he doesn't kill me in order to get to you. And so Pharaoh does take her. Sarah doesn't say a word, but somehow God reveals to Pharaoh that, no, that is uh, Abraham's wife, and these plagues you're having in your household are going to continue until you give her back. This plan worked so well that a few years later, he does the same thing with King Abimelech. As we go over here, you're going to say you're my sister because it worked so well before. No, it didn't. And the same thing happens. He does the same thing over again. And you are told by God, how many times now, you're going to have a son. But you kind of wavered in your faith. And all of a sudden, Sarah says, look, I'm too old. This isn't really going to happen. Maybe God wants us to help him with his prophecy. So here's my maidservant, Hagar. And you don't even see Abraham put up a fight. Okay. Time and time again. And yet, when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, you know what's so awesome? It only talks about the things that Abraham and Sarah did by faith. And you know what that tells me? All the dumb guy things that I've done, even as a believer in Jesus Christ, aren't going to follow me into eternity. Only the things I've done by faith. Thank you that you're making me a new creation. I love that. This is the hope that I have inside of me. That for all of eternity, those things I've done by faith. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. That the dumb guy things that I've done aren't going to go with me for all of eternity. You're a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We become a child of God. Where do I come from? I want you to go to Psalm 139. Go to Psalm 139. God doesn't create junk. He gives value to his creation. And when you receive Jesus, you're way more valuable at that point because Christ is in you and what he can do with you. But in Psalm 139, anybody that suffers from self-esteem, and especially if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I always bring people to this. Verse 13 of Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious! How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Think about this for a moment. I would submit to you the the thing that you're preoccupied with is because it has value to you. Has value to you. And so if 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 sports have value to you, you're always thinking about sports. If hunting has value to you, you're thinking about hunting. If, If your family is valuable, you're always thinking about your family. If the church is valuable, you're thinking about the church and how to be involved and things like that. If your relationship with Christ is where it is, you're constantly thinking about things of Christ and the word and things like that. And so if God, how precious is the thoughts, is constantly thinking of you to the point where he says in verse 18, if I should count them, they'd be more in number than the sand. How many grains of sand is there in the world? And God thinks of you that much? And I would submit to you, he was thinking about you before you were even born, before you were even created. 
and he still thinks about you. That's how precious you are to him. He doesn't make junk. That's how valuable you are to him. Where do I come from? I come from God, and so I have value. I have purpose and meaning right then and there. What is my purpose in life? To be conformed to the image of his son. As we read in Romans 8, 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Philippians 1, 6, be confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. You have a calling to be a blessing to other people. Everybody that has received Jesus has received a gift to use in the body of Christ. You have tremendous value to God to expand the kingdom of God. And he wants to use everybody and anyone who is willing, available, and teachable to the things of God, of what he wants from you. Where do I go when I die? John 14, 1 through 4, let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. He says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have heaven waiting for you. Even Paul would say, guess what? Be confident this very Absent from the body, present with the Lord. You die today, boom, you get to go be with Jesus. I have a future. I have a future. It's interesting to me because, look, to the atheist, uh, I think you're wrong. Okay, if I'm wrong, I end up at the same place you are, nothingness. But if you're wrong, you're not going to be in a good place. And I am. It's kind of like you have two horses to bet on. One will pay a million fold. All you got to do is bet a buck. And, and if you're right, you'll win a million dollars. There's two horses to bet on. One is dead. The other's alive. You're betting on the dead horse, and that makes absolutely no sense. No chance for this horse to win. I have a really good chance my horse is going to win. And even if it doesn't, as it, they shoot it off and it runs and it dies... Okay, I still end up the same place you do. But at least I have a chance that it might win. You don't even have that. Just from reason alone. Well, I don't really know if there's a God or not, but maybe I should investigate it. Okay, why don't you do that? What have you got to lose? You're already betting on a dead horse. I got this next slide here. We're going to end with this, but I'm going to read this to you. We're going to read the view of an atheist from top to bottom. And then we're going to read it from bottom up. And that's the view of the Christian. Now, some of you are reading it bottom up. Shame on you. Let's read it from the top down first. Okay? An atheist view of life. I will live my life according to these beliefs. God does not exist. It's just foolish to think there's a God with a cosmic plan. That an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the... uh, uh, to the pain and the suffering in the world is a comforting thought. However, it is only wishful thinking. People can do as they please without eternal consequences. The idea that I am deserving of hell because of sin is a lie meant to make me a slave to those in power. The more you have, the happier you will be. Our existence has no grand meaning or purpose in a world with no God. There's a freedom to be, I'm sorry, in a world with no God, there's a freedom to be who I want to be. 
But with God, everything is fine. It is ridiculous to think I'm lost in need of saving. Now we're going to read it from the bottom up. I'm lost in need of saving. It is ridiculous to think everything is fine. But with God, there's a freedom to be who I want to be. In a world with no God, our existence has no grand meaning or purpose. The more you have, the happier you'll be is a lie, meant to make you a slave to those in power. Because of sin, I'm deserving of hell. The idea that people can do as they please without eternal consequences is only wishful thinking. It is a comforting thought, however, that an all-powerful God brings redemption and healing to the pain and suffering in the world. That there is a God with a cosmic plan... It is foolish to think God does not exist. I will live my life according to these beliefs. Isn't that crazy? That's exactly what it is. The, the, the extremes are so opposite, okay, of what an atheist doesn't believe, which is really more what they believe is what they don't believe, and what a Christian believes. The hope that is in us is completely opposite to those who don't know God. We need to remember something. In order to win the lost out there, we have to do the care commission first and we have to love each other here. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I do want to thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the great care commission that you give us. This is how they're going to know that we are your disciples, our love for one another. That we have been called to be a blessing to other people here in the body of Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you'd really ask, have us ask that question. What are we doing that we're being a blessing to others within the body of Christ? And so, Lord, I, I pray for that. I pray that we would really seek hard to know how to answer the question of the defense of the gospel. Why do you believe? What reason do you have for the hope that is in you? And that through three minutes or less that we could say, this is why I believe. Because they see the hope in us, the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that we'd be ready to be able to say those things that we need to say, to be able to show the hope that is in us. We love you. We praise you. It is during that time that we take um, time out to recognize the wonderful birth of our Savior. And we are so grateful. And how the angel told Joseph that Jesus was born to die for the sin of mankind. We are so grateful for that. We love you. We praise you. Be with us. Help us be able to say Merry Christmas and love. And uh, Lord, use us in an amazing way that people would be able to see Jesus in this fellowship. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.